0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, the government revealed what life at Level Three might look like for us, and with COVID nineteen cases leveling off, and the cabinet meeting tomorrow to talk about moving off Level Four, well, some took this as a sign of a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. But the government's still giving out the message that no one really knows how long that tunnel is just yet, and it's probably a bit longer than most of us would like to think. The Prime Minister chose to use the analogy of Level 3 as a waiting room and no one's waiting more anxiously right now than our commercial media companies who were described as a patient with pre-existing conditions by Finance Minister Grant Robertson this week. Now those companies want the details of a promised package of targeted assistance to address their financial problems which are growing more acute by the day as ad revenue goes into freefall. Well, this week we'll hear from one observer who says that the current crisis is actually an opportunity to plan for journalism here that doesn't depend on ads anymore. He runs a platform which does just that, but would that or anything similar really help? But before that, we look at how no fewer than 12 media bosses left Parliament's Epidemic Response Committee this week in no doubt about the peril they face.
2: In associated, if not quite related news, it was made public that the parent company of Burger King in New Zealand had been placed into receivership. Grant Graham and Brendan Gibson of Quarter Mentha were appointed receivers for the business, which operates 83 stores around the country and employs more than 2,600 people. Burger King restaurants have of course been closed as part of the lockdown and Gibson said this has had a significant impact on the business in New Zealand.
1: That was Murray Kirkness, the editor of the New Zealand Herald, last Tuesday night on a new programme at 7pm on its sister radio station, Newstalk ZB.
3: This is the Newstalk ZB lockdown special.
1: Newstalk ZB. Let's have a quick look at some of your texts. That programme has replaced ZB's long-running 7pm weeknight show Sports Talk, which is off the air now because there's not much sport to talk about. And for the same reason, the parent company NZME earlier this month shut down its entire radio network devoted to sport. But there's plenty of news about coronavirus to talk about right now in the new show Lockdown Special, such as the fast food chain Burger King flipping over into receivership in week three of this lockdown. But on Tuesday, there was other bad business news, which was much closer to home for the host, Murray Kirkness.
2: It's been another big day in terms of business and the economy, as we've heard a lot of tonight. NZME, publisher of The Herald and owner of Talk ZB, was in the headlines this morning with an announcement that 200 jobs are gone through redundancies or by not filling vacant positions, and also that staff on more than $50,000 a year have been asked to take a 12-week 15% pay cut. It's been a gruelling time, but we fight on, and we will continue to do so. As a matter of fact, I have to say I've never been prouder to work for this company than during the past few days and weeks. The people here are quite simply magnificent.
1: Now those job cuts are mainly in sport, entertainment, real estate and lifestyle because NZME's outlets are publishing very little of that stuff right now with those businesses effectively suspended at the moment. And plenty of people throughout the media joined Murray Kirkness in expressing their sorrow about 15% of NZME's workforce losing their jobs and most of the rest of them having their pay cut by 15% as well. Confirming those moves on Tuesday, NZME said the government's wage subsidy was helping but it wouldn't fill the void left by what it estimated to be a 50% drop in ad revenue compared with the same time last year. And NZME also warned it would continue looking for cuts to stay afloat. Now earlier that day, Finance Minister Grant Robertson appeared before Parliament's Epidemic Response Committee and he talked about the latest bad business news.
3: means that I think if that creditor compromise comes through, you will see the, the operating arm of Burger King in New Zealand continue to be able to trade and then as we move... And
1: Grant Robertson went on to bring up the headline-making bad news from NZME using a little medical terminology...
3: Specific thing, but it's an interesting example too. And you mentioned NZME. Uh, we do have to be careful about ascribing the problems of every business to COVID nineteen. Uh, the media sector is one where the patient had pre-existing conditions, and we we do need to recognise that. Um, we are working closely with the media sector on what is needed to continue. As we discussed the last time I was on the call. The, plurality of voices in our in our media but just think we need to be careful about that and the same even applies to Burger King because I think in 2019 uh, they um, had some issues around uh, the business and even put it up for sale I think at one point.
1: Now the media didn't like being described as a sick patient or compared to Burger King but the comparison was interesting. Burger King has 2600 employees more than the number of journalists fully employed around the entire country these days. But while Burger King and other fast food joints shut down during Level 4, the media carried on keeping people informed, clearly demonstrating their value as an essential service, and the journalism they produced was much more important to the public good in an emergency than burgers and fries. But while there'll probably be no shortage of fast food after lockdown and beyond for everyone who wants it, there'll be less distinctive journalism and media to choose from, and many of those providing it will actually be doing it for wages that will have fallen close to those paid by fast food chains. Many at MediaWorks took voluntary pay cuts of 15% last week. Among them was journalist Janneke to Ellen, who said that many of her peers now earn minimum wage or sit only just above it. These are talented people with degrees and years of experience, she said, so next time you hear someone deride our industry, or us... Please tell them that. On Thursday, New Zealand's biggest employer of journalist stuff asked its staff paid more than $50,000 a year to take a voluntary 15% pay cut for the next 12 weeks. The chief executive Sinead Boucher's pay will be cut by 40% and the company's executives will take cuts of 25%. And on the AM show last Thursday, MediaWorks host Duncan Garner also made a plea to a possibly unsympathetic
0: audience. We're in trouble and we need help fast. Jobs are being shared, futures are more uncertain now than ever and advertising is dried up. Don't cheer on our demise please, be careful what you wish for. Could the government please um, get on with this rescue package if it's going to happen? Um, the life support machine um, cannot chug away forever. I do hope we have some sympathy. Good morning.
4: The team that has your back and will go into that with our partner Chorus, it's the AM
1: but Duncan Garner's co-host Mark Richardson wasn't sure they could bank on public sympathy. This is, this is
5: a question, all right, that needs to be answered mm. by a few people here, and particularly the people that pulled purse strings, all
2: mm-hmm. right? I work on the railways, or I'm a bar worker, or I work in a supermarket, or what have you. you know, I'm, I'm sort of doing it, I, mm. I do not it tough, I, mm. I pay my wages. Mm. So why the hell should you flashy pants in the media, who I can't stand anyway, mm-hmm. get, get my taxpayers' money?
1: And Mark Richardson's not the only one asking that question. Politicians with the power to bail out the media from the public purse, or not, have been pondering that too, though by now in the full knowledge that the flashy-pants media are now on pay and budgets that are not at all that flash. On the AM show, Duncan Garner went on to speak to his former boss, Mark Jennings, a long-time head of news at TV3, now the co-editor of the Auckland-based online news service Newsroom, which survives on subscriptions and donations from readers and supporters and sponsorship from various corporate backers and institutions. And Duncan Garner wanted a medical diagnosis from Mark Jennings as well.
0: How would you um,
1: describe our current state,
0: if it's like in hospital terms? Are we in critical care? Are we ICU? What is it?
5: Yeah, it's ICU for sure. Um, I keep hearing the word existential crisis. I'm not sure what that means exactly in this context, but I think it means huge, real, here right now.
1: Mark Jennings was one of 12 media bosses from outlets big and small who had a chance the day before that to tell members of the Epidemic Response Committee about their problems and to hopefully influence the shape and scope of that yet-to-be-finalised short-term rescue package.
5: You know, we really are in an existential crisis crisis here, because advertising revenues in New Zealand are absolutely in free fall. Um I estimate the declines since the lockdown to have been between 50 and 75 percent, and no medium is exempt from that.
1: That was Gavin Ellis, a former editor-in-chief of the New Zealand Herald. They're speaking as the Epidemic Response Committee's expert witness, and he went on to tell the committee members this.
5: Uh, you know we hear the refrain government's not in the business of propping up failing enterprises and you know in in normal times I agree with that but these aren't normal times and news media are not normal enterprises so I think there is a special case to be made they're not too big to to fail but they certainly are too important to fail certainly the main ones For over
1: four hours last Wednesday, the media representatives fielded questions, sometimes alarmingly unfocused ones from MPs, and so did the Minister of Broadcasting and Digital Media, Chris Farfoy, who said that package of measures was imminent but not yet finalised. But other countries have already acted on this. The Australian government, for example, announced a coronavirus relief package across the Tasman on Wednesday. In it, commercial television and radio broadcasters had their spectrum fees waived for about a year and local content quotas suspended for 2020, maybe even longer. And there was also a $50 million Australian dollar fund, the Public Interest News Gathering Programme, known as PING, to support regional journalism after a wave of recent local radio and newspaper closures. In Ireland, the government there is advancing sums of up to 170000 New Zealand dollars to broadcast public information by radio over the next three months. And last Wednesday, at the committee session here, Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy would only hint at some of the short-term measures that the package might include. Meanwhile, media bosses and their employees are holding their breath. At last Wednesday's meeting, they spoke with almost one voice about the lightly taxed and barely regulated global tech titans, Google and Facebook, stripping out the ad revenue that's been their livelihood in the past. And they castigated the government for swelling the tech titans' offshore coffers by placing their publicly funded campaigns on the platforms at a cost of millions of dollars a year. Though no one mentioned NZX-listed Trade Me, interestingly, which has made a mint down the years, killing off classified ads our media once harvested but there were sharp differences at the Epidemic Response Committee over the controversial proposed merger of the country's two biggest news publishers, NZME and Stuff. The the Commerce Commission said no to that back in 2018, and so did the courts, twice afterwards. But the two companies still want it. On NZME own Talk ZB last Thursday, the morning host Mike Hosking put the company line across to his listeners like this.
4: So with the benefit of hindsight, we'd now sit there and go, I wonder... If we relaunch that argument back in front of the Commerce Commission, a few of them might wake up long enough and do the right thing. And whether or not, Patrick asks this question, whether or not it's too late to make that merger happen and provide a bit of surety to the industry. But you want to look that up, time to let NZME and stuff merge. Question mark. 10 to Tenderweight. Now
1: there, Mike Hosking was referring to an article by Patrick Smelly, the founder of the Business Desk News Service, but in his piece he had actually pointed out that the merger could only be revived if both companies admitted that they would fail without it, something they never did in over two years of pursuing the merger so far. Their arguments about Facebook and Google were not actually part of that picture. Patrick Smelly was also one of the media representatives who spoke at the Epidemic Response Committee last Wednesday, and he told it he didn't think a merger would save either Stuff or NZME in the long term. And neither did Mark Jennings on TV3's AM show last Thursday.
5: I think that's easy to say in retrospect, because I think a lot of people were against it and worried about the lack of diversification in the media, if you like, lack of plurality. But, of course, now it's pretty obvious that some of those companies can't survive unless they're allowed to merge. Um, so I think, yes, but is it too late?
1: And after that, Mark Jennings went on to tell the AM show hosts something they really didn't want to hear.
5: We probably have too many TV stations. Mm. We probably have too many radio stations. Um, I think you're cutting out there, Mark. Yeah, uh, yeah we've, we've lost them. We've, yeah, lost, no, we've you lost, you lost you on you've too that. many TV stations. <laughs> I've got
3: too many news <laughs> websites. <laughs>
0: Hey Mark I'm, I'm Mark, I was kidding about that.
1: Mark Jennings, though, wasn't kidding there, and there was lots of discussion about that at the Epidemic Response Committee this week as well. Now, there's an account of who said what last Wednesday on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. Just look for the title, Media Make the Case for Emergency Help. And in another piece there, Hayden Donnell looks at the media representatives confronting the fact that advertising income that's long bankrolled the important journalism of private media outfits in the past won't for much longer. That's there for you to read on the RNZ website page for MediaWatch and our section of the RNZ app. And you can also hear Hayden talking about that in last Wednesday's edition of Midweek Media Watch, talking to Brian Crump on Nights. That's in the MediaWatch podcast feed. One member of the Epidemic Response Committee last Wednesday, MP Michael Wood, also raised the prospect of not doing anything to intervene in the media market and letting what he called creative destruction take place to see what would emerge, and he put that to the founder of one of the newer digital age media outlets, Duncan Grieve of the spin-off.
5: Yeah, I'm I'm wearing a few hats here, but as a business operator, creative destruction is not unattractive to me. You know, I, I really, I back my team, and, but... With, as, a, as a journalist and a participant in this industry, the idea horrifies me. Uh, you know, the off can only exist as part of an ecosystem. We're 12 journalists. You know, we, we used to have 4,000 with probably down under 2,000 now as a country, despite our population having significantly risen.
1: Now Michael Wood MP wasn't the only one listening to Wednesday's hearing online, pondering the options of not shoring up the media as we now know them, but rejigging them somehow without the unreliable underpinning of income from ads. Hamish McKenzie cut his teeth in student journalism, a Targa University student paper critic back in 2003, one year coincidentally after Patrick Crudson, who's the current chief editor of Stuff, New Zealand's biggest commercial publisher of news. After freelancing and writing for the now-defunct listener magazine, among others, Hamish McKenzie went to the US and became an in-house writer at Tesla, the innovative company led by the maverick entrepreneur Elon Musk. Then he went on to co found a subscription publishing startup called Substack, which helps writers make money from their readers. Substack's been described as an ad free social media network, and it was backed by more than 15 million US dollars of Silicon Valley venture capital last year. Two weeks ago, award winning journalist and author Matt Taibbi, famous for his work for Rolling Stone magazine, announced he would only be publishing his online writing through Substack from now on. Now as the US media were hit with COVID-19 chaos, Hamish McKenzie said that the old business model for media had exploded so spectacularly that the fire, smoke and debris were obscuring a -a once-in-a-century opportunity to rebuild it all over, make it better and more lucrative than it ever had been in the past, he said. That's pretty bold talk, and Hamish McKenzie also appealed for any New Zealand writers struck by layoffs or cutbacks to get in touch with him because Substack has an emergency grants programme currently making payments to writers in COVID-19 distress. Last week, on his own platform, Hamish McKenzie published an article headed What Could the New Zealand Media Look Like If It Were Reinvented?, in which he argued that they now need to be divorced entirely from the advertising business. Now, it's easy to write that, but much harder to actually do it without throwing much of the journalism baby out with the dirty economic bathwater. So, after Wednesday's Epidemic Response Committee hearings, Hayden Donnell summoned Hamish McKenzie via Skype in San Francisco to ask him how the journalism we have now could really be sustained with advertising no longer part of the picture at all.
0: Well, it already wasn't going to survive, and COVID-19 has pushed it over the cliff. And I think if you see some of the comments from the select committee the other day from media executives, they are saying uh, that the ad revenue is already over the cliff. Everyone knew this was coming at some point. It's just got here a little bit sooner than everyone thought. It's not because of the pandemic. It's because more efficient and more effective advertising machines were developed in the last decade or actually in the last two decades.
6: Right, so you're talking about Facebook and Google primarily there and also sites like TradeMe.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking mostly of Facebook and Google.
6: If Facebook and Google are now in this dominant position and the, 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 the commercial media as we know it can't survive, what are you thinking will rise up in its place?
0: A, a new kind of commercial media can not only survive but actually thrive. To get there, the world just has to realise that advertising is not going to be part of that future. I personally believe that subscriptions are a really big part of it, and finding the right mix between uh, the technology and the payments and uh, the structure of the business that's producing the media and then the media itself is going to be crucial in the new world.
6: You do have a heavy bias because this is what you're doing, right? Uh, you're, You're pretty much delivering exactly that with Substack.
0: Substack at its most simple just makes it simple for any writer to start a paid subscription newsletter. It's an email newsletter, but it also has a web component. So it's more like a web email hybrid. Everything you publish gets published to your personal Substack website and emailed out to anyone who's signed up to your mailing list and you can easily accept payments from those people who choose to pay at whatever price you set. And then for most people, uh, the path to success is not actually just putting all of your stories behind a paywall. In fact, you make the, the most successful models in Substack is if you make most of your stories, your best stories, especially free. And then you hope that say 10% of your overall audience will be willing to pay to get full access or a deeper sense of connection with you, this writer or a publisher who they love or trust.
6: So you're basically saying a a freemium model, you know, these, these are things that the news media has tried and the Herald is sort of doing now.
0: It's a variation of the freemium model and yes, I think it works better on Substack and part of it is that the writer is in control and has total flexibility about where the paywall goes down on a story by story basis. So you can strategically use free content to go and reach a wide audience. And then not expect that the entire audience is going to pay, but get some portion of that audience who believe in the work you're doing so much that they want to support it. That The new world can be built by niche publications that can flourish within their specific areas of expertise or passions. And then later on, they can be repackaged into alliances and bundles that kind of make sense uh, in a way that could potentially save people money instead of subscribing to 14 different uh, niche publications
6: the concern here is that what you mentioned—it's a boutique operation. A lot of these people that are joining up to it, you know, they are just small uh, specialist operators. Can a mainstream news service like Stuff survive on this kind of platform? How can that actually work?
0: Definitely, don't think you could just take what it is as it is and translate it and put it onto the Substack platform. You have to rebuild for this next generation of media, not try and carry over the. The parts of the media that were, were invented in a, in a different time. But I do think that large-scale publications or publishing groups, rather, can emerge. Uh, we've got this publication called The Dispatch, for example, which is started by some prominent political journalists in the US, uh, and they raised $6 million to get started. They have a newsroom now of uh, 12 people, and they, after a, a, a month after hitting, uh, sorry, a month after instituting their paywall, uh, they already surpassed a million dollars in revenue.
6: There's still going to be a demand, right, for these kind of generalist news services like Stuff. People are just going to, to still going to want to go to one place, right, and find all their news. Is is that just not going to be possible? Like, can that still be funded in in the new world that you're envisaging?
0: If you think of what Stuff is today, it's um, a, it's a website you go to Stuff.co.nz, and there's a bunch of different content on there. But that content is sourced from many different verticals and it's the many different verticals that constitute this greater galaxy that is the stuff empire and i'm mangling my metaphors here but there's stuff farming and there's stuff and there's the manawatu standards and then there's uh rugby heaven and a bunch of other things and aggregation of these little pieces that make stuff the whole and make it this apparently generalized website and so there is a way to reinvent that and in a model where the niche publications are the things that people pay and subscribe to. And perhaps by dint of subscribing to those ones, they get access to other ones. So there's a model in the U S that's playing this exact um, playbook. It's called the athletic and you subscribe to your local sports coverage because of that, you get access to everything that's published within the athletics sports network sports media network, which means that even if you just signed up to follow the Chicago bulls, you also get access to their coverage of college football, ice hockey in Toronto, etc.
6: Right, because I guess that's the daunting thing is as just as a news media consumer, right, you don't want to have 40 different subscriptions running for all of your
0: interests. For me, it just, it just indicates that there's a, a huge opportunity to come up with a solution for that. Bundling is a pretty common thing. Cable TV, uh, numerous other things throughout business history have, have, have done bundling to get around problems like this. You watch that select committee on Wednesday. And so now there's a crisis. Now there's no choice but to reinvent because the alternative is to die. And so there's a period to get through here um, for some of these existing news organizations. And if they can get through that period, then they can set themselves up to take some big shots, radically reinvent themselves and start walking towards a better future
6: organizations is enemy stuff media works they employ dozens hundreds of journalists the country's best journalists many of them they are at risk right so there's this really depressing side to this as well there's this risk to it are you cognizant yeah. of that and 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 does that do are you affected by that when when you're making these propositions
0: massively my my some of my very best friends are like caught up in this. I used to be a journalist myself. I've experienced some of this, some versions of this pain in other organizations I've worked for. But if we continue on and just sort of hope that the government is going to bail things out, then people are going to continue losing jobs and things are going to disappear. And the industry is going to consolidate and it's going to be shittier than ever two years from now.
6: You know, I can, I can picture, people from the Herald, or say say the Herald, uh, surviving on that. I can picture sort of columnists like Simon Wilson, you know, maybe Kirsty Johnston. But there are people that maybe, I feel like maybe they'd struggle on this model, you know, and they're great journalists, maybe a Jared Savage or, you know, Matt Shand of stuff, you know, these are not high-profile journalists necessarily, but they do good work. Are those people at a disadvantage in this subscription model where having this big profile is actually important?
0: I don't think the um, specific substack model is going to be the only model, and it would be hubristic of us to claim that. Um, There are going to have to be other models to support journalism, and some of them will be philanthropic, and some of them will be uh, billionaires-owning magazines, and some of them will be publicly funded institutions like the BBC or Radio New Zealand. But even for people the likes of Jared Savage and uh, serious long-form investigative feature writers – I think there is a, a way for them to exist in a publishing enterprise that is based on something like the Substack model. And we see it actually existing already in the United States with the Dispatch, which is this US politics site I was talking about before. They're not all just uh, high-profile opinionators and uh, uh, analysis writers. They, they hire freelancers and they hire other reporters who don't have to bring in those giant audiences, but are there to produce quality work that rewards the trust of their readerships. And so in the in the same way that the existing newspaper model doesn't really uh, pay for, like the only way it pays for those types of reporters at the moment is from having a successful property section or a successful sports section. It's not because those people actually pay their own way.
6: Now, I guess just to, just to close, can we come back to now? What should happen now? Because we've got a crisis right now in the media.
0: If they're gonna bail out things like airlines and energy companies, then you have to bail out the media as well. I don't think it should be a long-term or ongoing thing. I think it should be a short solution for whatever it takes to get these organizations over the hump into finding a radical new model or a radically different model that can actually set them up for a long-term sustainability. I, I, I think there's going to be short-term pain replaced by a much more vibrant and much more lucrative and much richer, in every sense of the word, media ecosystem where readerships are more satisfactorily served, even if they are from small communities. The internet has made so much possible, and there's so much innovation to come with the subscription model. So I'm excited to see what's going to come now that the rules are changing.
6: Hamish, hey, did, did you have, have you guys had a, had a baby in lockdown? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I was gonna. How is okay. that? <laughs>
0: That seems like a hard work. Yeah, we were really we were really stressed about it because it felt it looked for a while like that baby was going to be born at a time when the hospitals were going to be overwhelmed in San Francisco. One, the peak actually came later than our baby's birth, which was March 22. And two, San Francisco somehow has managed to avoid a lot of the problems seen in other parts of the company, uh, other parts of the country. But now, um, this is why I'm doing this call at 10:30 at night. I've got a almost three year old and a three-week-old, and we uh, can't leave the house too much. And so it's a good challenge, but it also is nice for having quality family bonding time.
6: I guess that's it. You're trying to stay positive in a difficult
1: time. I guess it's just like the media.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're so lucky compared to other people.
1: There was Hamish McKenzie, former New Zealand journalist who's now the founder of the subscription-based media service Substack in the US and there he was talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell via Skype from San Francisco after the Emergency Response Committee's special session of Parliament which was devoted to the media's problems last Wednesday. As we mentioned there, he's invited any New Zealand journalists who have lost their jobs or incomes during the COVID-19 crisis to get in touch. He's on Twitter at Hamish McKenzie, all one word, or you'll find details in the online version of this story on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website. Now, at that committee session on Wednesday, the Broadcasting Minister, Chris Farfoy, said that the targeted assistance package for the media would be announced within a week. We'll be reporting on that when it happens here at Media Watch. This week's announcement of guidelines for COVID-19 Alert Level 3 provoked a flurry of responses in the media, though no decision had actually been made yet about moving from Level 4. And while some saw this as a good sign, many with a mouthpiece in the media saw it as proof that we had overreacted here and we should have followed Australia's lead with looser rules instead. Now many of these were the same names and voices we heard last week calling for an opening up of more businesses and that the economic cost of the lockdown was too great set against the limited risk of death to mainly older people, many of whom, the argument went, might have been a bit crook anyway. Auckland University epidemiologist Simon Thornley, who said last week we don't want to squash a flea with a sledgehammer and bring the house down, was back in the news this week as one of the six academics in various fields arguing for a plan B to supersede the effort to stamp out the virus here. And that call was the lead story in Tuesday's Dominion Post, and the campaigners took it up a notch with a new website and by hiring Wellington firm Blackland PR to argue that the lockdown may be more harmful than the problem we're trying to solve. Now after that, more than 60 academics from Auckland University's School of Population Health signed a statement in response backing New Zealand's current elimination strategy. This week, that notion of the hour lockdown being over-the-top was strongly endorsed by hosts on talk radio network News Talk ZB, the ones who are encouraged, required even, to opine daily on the latest life-and-death developments. For example, on Thursday, ZB political editor Barry Soper said there was no need for the government to have strangled the economy the way it has, and Barry Soper said the Australians have shown us how to fight the virus while keeping their economy ticking over. And there was lots more where that came from on ZB. But these restrictions are still keeping too many businesses closed. Right now, what we should be doing is using Australia
5: as a guide, right? They are tracking really closely to us. Similar number of cases per capita, similar number of deaths.
4: Uh, Level three, six. In a nutshell, level three is, of course, Australia. Australia is where we should have been all along. Australia are doing better than us. This is where we should have been for a month.
1: And all that one-way traffic on ZB was amplified in the form of opinion pieces posted on the New Zealand Herald's website, where Herald journalists were also interrogating the claims behind that big push for a Plan B. Investigative reporter Kirsty Johnston, for example, looked closely at Australia's looser lockdown and got a range of experts to interpret data, most of whom didn't see Australia as the model. And the Herald science reporter Jamie Morton examined key arguments in the push for Plan B one by one. On the spin-off, microbiologist Susie Wiles wrote a rebuttal of the Plan B proponents' claims, and while she was at it, she said those empty hospital beds were empty because the lockdown had kept people out of hospital. Likewise, the absence of mass burials that we've seen in Italy, Spain, the US and elsewhere. Now on Friday, Mike Hosking went on to tell his ZB listeners this.
4: The numbers simply don't lie. In their obsession to eliminate, that word again, eliminate the virus, they have failed to accept our lockdown and have simply gone too far.
1: But earlier in the week on Monday, Mike Hosking was having a little trouble with numbers when he told his listeners this about the tactics in another country, Iceland.
4: And what they found is half the population at any given time has the virus but doesn't know it. Half. 50%.
1: Now that's alarming news for an island nation like ours. And yet the hospitals of Reykjavik are not overflowing, so what could we learn from that?
4: So if that's applicable to any other country because no one else tests just random groups of people, you've got to show some sort of symptom or sign, if that's applicable, then we're wasting our time. Then a lockdown has been a complete and utter waste of time. But
1: it turns out that half of the Icelanders are not unwitting carriers of COVID-19. While half of those who tested positive for it and other respiratory illnesses were asymptomatic and unaware, they amounted to less than 1% of people in the biggest testing drive, and possibly as few as 0.3%. So in other words, less than one Icelander out of about 200 could be infectious, not one in every two, as Mike Hosking said. Well, the man in charge of the biggest testing company there did tell USA Today it's a bit scary that they might be out there spreading it and not knowing the risk, which you'd think would actually give weight to the case for a tighter lockdown for now. Well, here at MediaWatch we're not experts in analysing the sometimes complicated data about COVID-19, but we found that out by reading the first two stories about Iceland's testing that we could find on Google. So good enough information is out there, something Mike Hosking himself said later on on his own show on Friday.
4: There is a growing body of intelligent, well-thought-out and clever insight into all of this. There has been no excuse not to learn and not to know more.
1: However, that day it wasn't just Mike Hosking having trouble with the numbers and what they mean. Later that afternoon, PR professional Michelle Bogue surprised listeners of the panel on RNZ National with this.
5: This is COVID-19. Presumably there's been 18 of coronaviruses on the way to get to 19.
1: That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but Hayden Donnell will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night talking to Brian Crump on nights and then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.